So we come to the next in our series of Encounters with Jesus, and this week we have the wonderful, different from public teaching, but a private conversation that Jesus has with a man called Nicodemus. So let's read it, and we're going to start reading actually from the end of chapter 2 of John's Gospel before we go into chapter 3. So we have this wonderful conversation and also John's comment, commentary on it in the second half of that reading. Uh, and we have here, I noticed when I read it through, two musts, you must be born again and the Son of Man must be lifted up. We have threes, I tell you the truth, or truly I say to you, very truly I say to you, the old fashioned, it was verily, verily I say unto thee, three times Jesus says he's speaking the truth. He's the only one who can tell us the truth about heavenly things because he's the only one who's been there and come from there to tell us the truth. And also I noticed five contrasts. You've got the contrast between flesh and spirit, between earthly things and heavenly things, between life and death or perishing, between condemnation and being saved, between light and darkness. I don't know that we'll be able to go through all of those, but we'll see how far we get. First of all, there's this Nicodemus. We're told quite a lot about him. Uh, we're told that he was a Pharisee. Um, they weren't all bad. I know later on they get have a terrible reputation of being hypocrites and being proud, and Jesus has a lot to say against them. But there were some sincere men of integrity among the Pharisees, and it would seem that Nicodemus was one of them. He would have been a very religious man. He would have known the Old Testament thoroughly, back to front and inside out. He'd have been learn learning it since he was a child. And he would have been very keen on making sure that all the commandments in the Old Testament were kept by himself and by other people. So he would have been steeped in the scriptures. Uh, and then we're told that he was a member of the ruling council for the century. He, he was, if you like, a Supreme Court judge who made rulings on religious matters. And he was a great theologian and teacher. When Jesus says to him, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand things, actually in the Greek it says, you're the teacher of Israel. He was the prominent theologian, if you like, that everybody went to to get teaching from. And like all religious Jews, he'd have gone to Jerusalem for the Passover, which is, we know this conversation happened at Passover time. And he had seen the many, many miracles that Jesus had done. We're not told what they were in this case, but this is the first time Jesus went to Jerusalem during his public ministry, and it tells us that he did many miracles. But true faith comes from hearing the word, not just seeing the signs. Jesus' miracles all happened, if you think about it, in the material, the earthly realm. Feeding people, healing people, calming a storm, they're all to do with earthly things. But his teaching uh, had, were his words from, of heavenly, from the heavenly realm, heavenly wisdom. Now, Nicodemus had seen the signs, but not taken in the words. But he had taken notice of the signs and wondered what they were pointing to. Because the first thing that surprised me when I read through chapter 3 was in verse 3, and it says, In reply, Jesus declared, 
as though Nicodemus had asked a question, and he hadn't. He answered Nicodemus's question, even though Nicodemus hadn't asked one yet. He'd just stated the conclusions he'd come to from seeing the signs, that you're a teacher from God, that God must be with you because nobody else could do these things unless you were. And that's why I read the end of chapter 2 beforehand. The chapters and verses weren't in the original manuscripts. They were added centuries later. And sometimes they're in the wrong place. <laughs> and it makes a stop at the end of two, chapter 2 one day, and the next day go on to chapter 3 in our reading. And we miss the link between the two. And the link is the word man. He didn't need man's testimony about a man, for he knew what was in a man. I think the version up there said he knew what was in each person. But in the Greek, it's the same. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. This was the link, that Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus. Uh, there was a person, if you like, called Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees. And Jesus knew what he was thinking. He knew what was in his heart, what was bothering him. And the question that was bothering him, or the subject that was bothering him, was the kingdom of God. Nicodemus would have believed that the kingdom of God was going to come when God showed his power, defeated all Israel's enemies, at that time the Romans, and restored the kingship to Israel. And he believed that all religious Jews who obeyed the law, like him, would be part of that kingdom. And having seen the miracles that Jesus did, he was wondering whether they were signs that the power of God had come at last and the kingdom of God was about to arrive. And that was what was going on in his head. And Jesus takes the rug right from under his feet and says, Nicodemus, you won't even recognize the kingdom, let alone enter it, unless you are born again. And the word born again, it can mean born from above or born anew. In fact, some translations say, unless you are born again from above, because the two thoughts are held in that one word. Uh, now Nicodemus would have heard the phrase born anew or born from above before, but, but it was used for Gentiles becoming Jews. Jews who wanted to worship the Jewish God and become part of the Jewish community, would go through a period of instruction, then the men would be circumcised, and then they would go through a ritual cleansing bath of water, and they, as they came up, it was said they were born anew, they're born now as a Jew. But Nicodemus had been born earthly as a Jew. How can Jesus be saying to him, you must be born again? And Jesus is talking, you people, he says, don't understand what I'm saying. And Nicodemus just couldn't take it in. He'd already been born a Jew, and he was too old, and he was pointing out that it was ridiculous to suggest that someone could enter into their mother's womb and be born a second time. He was still thinking at an earthly level. And Jesus doesn't budge. He just says the same thing again. You must be born again. I'm not talking about earthly, fleshly birth. I'm talking about a heavenly spiritual birth. If you think about it, your first birth made you a fleshly, flesh and blood human being. The second birth will make you into a spiritual being. A baby in the womb knows nothing of the world around them, 
apart from their mother's voice, <laughs> we're told. They can uh, hear that when they're in the womb. But otherwise, they know nothing about the world about them. But when it's born, instead of being limited in this tiny space and being in darkness, it comes out into the freedom and light of a whole new world and begins to discover all the wonderful things in it and develops tastes and skills. It's the same, Jesus. It's the same with the second birth, Jesus says. When you've been born the second time from above, a whole new world opens up to you. You'll want to discover and learn about it. It's like coming out of darkness into light. How does this happen? <laughs> That's the big question. And Jesus actually doesn't give a mechanical answer. Mechanically, I can't tell you. Because it's God's work, not ours. It's the Spirit's work, and it comes from above. Just as we have nothing to do with our first birth, there is a sense in which we have nothing to do with our second birth. And yet we have to respond to the Spirit's working. It's like the wind, Jesus says. Um, and in Greek, both Hebrew and Greek, the word for wind and spirit are the same. It's ruach in the Old Testament and pneuma in the New Testament Greek. It's like the wind. You can't get hold of it. You can't get a handful of wind and analyse it and see what's in it. Apart, I suppose, unless it comes from Sahara and is full of Saharan dust covering your car. But you cannot get hold of wind and analyse it. <coughs> and it comes in different ways, the wind. It can be a warm, gentle embrace of a breeze. It can chill you to the bone, or even if it's strong enough, it can knock you off your feet. And God is a God of infinite variety, and he has a variety of ways to get the spirit to blow on us and to change us. With me, it was a chill wind, a beast from the east, if you like, that blew on me for about 10 hours, out of nowhere, as far as I was concerned. But it was obviously from above. People were praying for me. And it was this chill wind that I thought I was all right. And it suddenly convinced me that I was thoroughly bad, and I was rotten to the core and I couldn't do anything about it, and I was totally miserable <laughs> for 10 hours. And in the end, I gave in, and I can remember, I fell on my knees, and I said, I can't stand this anymore. Jesus, you're the only person I've heard of who can cope with this. If it's true, I'm yours. And that was when I was born again. With another friend of mine who had knew she had totally messed up her life, he came like a gentle, warm, loving breeze, saying, I want you in my kingdom, even though you've messed up. And she ran into his warm embrace. There are all some people, it is in a moment. Some people, it can take a long time. Some births are quick. Some births take a long time. Some births are very prolonged. Not everybody can put a date on it. But at some stage, we have to respond to the Spirit's blowing. And the effects of your new birth will be different. For me, the change I noticed immediately was that I loved the Bible. Before, I had been totally uninterested. It was a dry, dreary book, and I didn't want anything to do with it. 
and it lay there <laughs> unopened. And suddenly, all I wanted to do was to read the Bible. With my friend, <laughs> her eyes were suddenly opened to the beauty of nature. It happened on a Sunday evening. On the Monday, she was visiting a, um, a housebound client, and she walked in, and she was completely gobsmacked. There was a budgerigar in a cage, and she had never seen anything so beautiful. She was absolutely stunned by it. <laughs> and in fact, it had lost a tail feather, and there was a tail feather on the floor, and she asked the, the client if she could take it, and she stuck it in her Bible to remember. There's a wonderful line in a hymn, I think it goes something like this. Heaven above is brighter blue, earth beneath is softer green. There's a glory in each hue that Christless eyes have never seen. And suddenly she was awakened to the beauty of God's creation. Nicodemus, you know the effects of the wind, but you don't yet know the effects of the spirit. And just that the wind changes the weather the wind can change you from above. By and he says you must be by water and the spirit. Here's another aspect of how uh, birth comes, not just through wind, but also through water. There, were, there are two times in the Old Testament where the water and the spirit come in the same passage. First one is in the second verse, where the spirit of God hovered over the waters before creation. The second one is in Ezekiel 36, where God says to the Jews, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to keep my laws. That's the time. You need the both. And Nicodemus knew the Old Testament thoroughly, and he would have recognized what Keith keeps calling a hyperlink. He'd have thought, water, spirit, water, spirit, that's, Ezekiel, that's what Ezekiel's talking about. And he's talking to Jews about needing to be cleansed and having a new heart and a new spirit put in. You need to be cleansed as well as given life by the spirit. You need to recognize that you're dirty and need to be cleaned. That's what the, the beast from the east did to me. I thought I was okay up until then. Suddenly I realized I was rotten. And it's the work of the Spirit to convict us of sin. It's one of the things he does. And it's most often through the Word of God that he does that and cleans us up. There's so much going on here spiritually all at the same time, I can't put it. But Jesus says to his disciples, you are already clean through the Word that I have spoken to you. Paul talks about Jesus cleansing his church by washing with water through his word. And this brings Jesus to his next illustration. He's been talking about birth. He's been talking about the spirit and the wind. And it brings us to the next must. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And he goes to the Old Testament to explain this to Nicodemus. So let's now go to the incident in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. Can we have that up? And this happens when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's their own fault they're there. They could have been in the promised land already. But they had said, no, 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 too frightening, too scary, we'll be eaten up, we won't go in. And they didn't believe in God and they turned away. And so there they are in the desert. 
and they travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food, the manna that God was giving them every day of the week. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is an extraordinary story. There they are, it's their own fault, they're wandering around the, the wilderness for 40 years till that generation of unbelievers dies off. And in his mercy, God has still cared for them and had compassion on them and made provision for them. He's given them manna to eat every day. He's given them water from the rock. He's kept their clothes from wearing out and their shoes from wearing out. He's still been caring for them. And they can't be bothered. They're just fed up. They're bored with it all. We detest this miserable food. And what's more, they say, God, it's all your fault for bringing us out of Egypt. If you hadn't brought us out of Egypt, we wouldn't be in this problem. So God punished them for this sin of ungratefulness, of grumbling, of blaming God for their situation. And he sent deadly poisonous snakes. And finally, they realized that they had sinned. We've sinned. Oh, take the snakes away. But interestingly enough, God doesn't take the snakes away. But he provided a way of escape. He provided a way that they could escape death and go on to life. Put up a bronze snake on a tall stake where everyone can see it. And if you're bitten, look at the snake and live. It's so simple. Just look. Again, I can't explain how it worked. But it did. Because they obeyed God. They looked at the snake and they lived. And Jesus say, says, in the same way that Moses lifted up the snake, I must be lifted up on a pole, on a stake, so that whoever looks at me, whoever believes in me, won't die, but will have eternal life. Again, I can't explain how it works uh, any more than the Israelites could explain how the snake worked. But those who believed it and looked at it were saved. So it does work. When you look at Jesus on the cross, when you see him dying to take the punishment for your sin, and you say, that was for me. That's how you got me cleaned up. You're forgiven. You're clean. Oh yes, the new birth is both cleansing, uh, the new birth and the cleansing are both mysterious, they're both mysteries, but they're also both necessities according to Jesus. If you want to enter the kingdom of God and to have eternal life, which by the way speaks of quality, not quantity, okay, it will go on into the future, but it's a new quality of life 
The Spirit is in you now, and you see Jesus differently. And now we come on to this famous verse, verse John 3.16, which I believe, and I'll explain why later, is John's comment on what Jesus has just said, his commentary. Um, And it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible, but its meaning is often, its true meaning is often missed. I've heard it said recently, particularly, this verse has been used to show that God loves his creation and we should all care about the environment. Now, there are plenty of other verses in the Bible that say God does care for his creation and he minds how we steward it, but this verse is not one of them. The world here does not mean the physical creation. It means human society, the world of people who've organized themselves without God, sometimes in opposition to God, and it's always in the New Testament a bad thing. Jesus said, the world has hated me. He didn't mean creation has hated me. He said, the world will hate you because you're different. He doesn't mean creation will hate us. He means the people in the world will hate us. And also, I've looked up the word um, loved (laughs) throughout, because when I first heard this, I thought, hang on. And throughout the Bible, nowhere does God love an inanimate object. He loves people, not things. And we are never told to love an inanimate object. We're told to love God. We're told to love one another, to love our neighbor, to love our enemies. We're never told to love a thing. The only twice I found in the Bible where people love things was Isaac, who loved tasty food and asked Esau to go and prepare him some, and King Uzziah, who loved farming and set up all sorts of vineyards and fertile fields and this sort of thing. But they're the only two people, and it's just stated that they have it. Then the other word, I think, that is misunderstood so often is the word so. We tend to read it, God loved the world so much, you know, in such a big way. He does. I'm not saying he doesn't. His love is called great, his great love towards us elsewhere. But in this verse, it doesn't mean that. The so is the first word in the sentence, and it refers back to, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. So God will lift up his Son on a cross so that everyone who looks to him uh, will not perish but have everlasting life. And a thing that doesn't come out in the English is the word loved and gave. In Greek, there are different tenses to ours. We have one past tense. And it can mean, I did something once, or I've been doing something for ages. We've been talking about learning. (laughs) Um, And Sean was talking about learning to dance. (laughs) And he started learning, but he will go on learning. But there are some things we learn at one particular time. Also, the word you might be able to say if you're married, I married my spouse on such and such a date. But you have gone on being married ever since. And this aorist tense means something that happened once and has a lasting effect, like marrying someone. You do it once, but it has a lasting effect on your life. And both the fact that God loved the world and gave his son are in that tense. It means on one occasion, God loved the world. 
On one occasion, he gave his son. And that one occasion was the cross, which Jesus was pointing to when he referred to Moses lifting up the snake on the stake. And here, John is explaining that's why Jesus used the bronze snake. Because on one occasion, God loved the world, and on one occasion, he gave his son. Um, I've rushed ahead of myself. And this is why I believe the conversation finishes at the end of verse 15. There are various things. Uh, I think in most Bibles it says some people in the quotation at 15, some at 21. But there are so many differences between from 16 onwards. It, Jesus has been talking about you to Nicodemus. And now John is talking in the third person, anyone, whoever. If a man believes this or doesn't believe that, it's all in the third person. The other reason is Jesus always called himself the son of man. Always. That's how he referred to himself. He never referred to himself as God's one and only son. Only John does that. In the old fashion, it was the only begotten son. And John uses that twice. Once in verse 16 and once in verse 18, he uses this phrase. But the biggest, biggest reason why I think this is John's comment or commentary on the conversation is that the cross hadn't happened when Jesus spoke about the bronze servant being lifted up. And when John wrote the gospel, the cross happened, had happened. And he's saying, don't you see, this happened that God gave his son, he put his son up on a stake so that everyone who looks at him could have everlasting life. I want to tell you about one person who did look at Jesus and was saved. You will have heard of him, many of you. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, <laughs> that great 19th century preacher and the founder of the Baptist Union. He can tell the date. On January the 6th in 1850, Colchester, where he lived, was practically crippled by a snowstorm, and he couldn't get to the usual church that he went to. So he went to a small primitive Methodist chapel that he could reach, and the uh, designated preacher couldn't get there either, so they had a stand-in. Some poor person, unprepared uh, and not a minister, had to give the message. And uh, he chose as his text a verse from Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the world. If you look that up in the NRA, it says, uh, turn to me and be saved. But the Hebrew means turn your face to me. In other words, turn your face away from all the other things and look to me. Look to me and be saved. Um, and although the teenage uh, Spurgeon came from a Christian home, for the last few months, he'd become very troubled. He didn't know. He, said, I, I, he was pretty certain he wasn't saved and he didn't know what to do about it. It was making him miserable. Anyway... This unprepared speaker didn't have much to say, and he just kept repeating the text, <laughs> look to me and be saved. And at one point he added, you don't have to go to college to learn to look. You don't have to be clever or educated or sophisticated to learn to look. Anybody can look. A child can look. And then he saw Spurgeon sitting at the side, 
And he pointed at him, and he said, young man, you look miserable. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon did look, and was saved, and born again to eternal life. I can't explain it. But it was God's work in him. He had to respond to it. He had to do the looking. But everything necessary to be done had been done by God. He'd put his son up on a stake. <laughs> He'd blown with the wind of his spirit to show Spurgeon he wasn't right with God. And then he spoke the word to him. And Spurgeon responded. So what about Nicodemus? Did he look? Was he saved? We meet him twice more in John's Gospel. Once in John chapter 7 when the other Pharisees and the chief priests are trying to arrest Jesus to have him killed. And he sort of stands up for Jesus in a way. <laughs> and he says, but surely our law doesn't allow for somebody to be condemned without hearing them first. But he doesn't come right up. He's a sort of closet believer, if you like. But he turns up again in chapter 19. And that's when he comes right open, out openly as a disciple, Jesus. And he helped Joseph of Arimathea to bury the body. Because he had seen Jesus up on the stake. He'd been there at the crucifixion. He'd looked at Jesus, lifted up. And Jesus' words suddenly made sense to him. And he looked and was saved. And then he did something about it. He came out in the open and buried Jesus. And he must have, we don't hear about him in Acts, but he must have told John about this conversation. Have you wondered how we know about it? This was a conversation just between Nicodemus and Jesus, but we have it here. He must have told John what had made him come out into the open as a disciple. We know that he was a man of integrity. He's often criticised for coming to Jesus by night. Oh, he was, he was ashamed of it. He was trying to hide. He didn't want to be seen. But I don't think so. Jesus was, during the day, he was in the crowds and surrounded by people. This was the only chance Nicodemus had of having a private conversation with him. That's why he came at night. Because he was a man of integrity. He'd been thinking, this is a man from God. And although he was the teacher best-known teacher in Israel, he was humble enough to come to Jesus with his questions. And that's what all of us should do, come to Jesus with our questions. And he must have remembered Jesus' answers. He must have concentrated on what Jesus was saying, even though he didn't understand it. And he must have pondered them till the truth of what Jesus said became real to him when he looked at Jesus on the cross and was born again from above. So let's pray as we read this and as we still try to ponder to get to the bottom of these wonderful truths. As Naomi said, we need to go on learning all our lives and seeing more and more about the truth of what. Let's pray for those who have not been born again. That they, let's pray for God to blow the wind of his spirit on them and for them to respond. And for us, for those of us who have been born again, a once-off occasion that goes on having lasting effects. Let us go on letting the wind of the Spirit blow us as we live, move us 
to obey God, to love him more, to be more devoted to him. Let us continually let him wash us with the water of his word. And let us continue to look at the cross, Jesus on the cross, and to remind him, we've just sung it, behold the man upon the cross. Let's continue to do that, because we'll never know how much it cost, but we can know what it has achieved in our lives. Amen.